Hello, my name is Emily Clark. I head up the tax team at Travers Smith, and I would like to welcome you to the second episode in our Travelling Seamlessly Global Mobility podcast series. In this series, members of the Travers Smith Global Mobility team will talk to you about the implications of moving your people and operations into and out of different countries, and also discuss situations where members of your team may need to work in more than one country. In this episode, Hannah Manning and Siv Devakumar will be talking about how to structure tax-efficient share incentive arrangements for international management teams in private equity transactions. For many private companies and their financial investors, management equity incentives are key to recruiting and retaining the best people. But there can be challenges in creating a plan that is affordable, tax-efficient and is incentivising in all the relevant jurisdictions. Hannah and Sib will explain the key features of an effective share incentive arrangement and the questions that businesses need to consider when implementing it. To find out more about the issues discussed in this podcast, the Travis Smith Global Mobility Team, and how we can help with your global mobility projects, you can visit our website, www.traversmith.com, and search for Global Mobility. And now over to Hannah and Siv. everyone and thanks for joining us for the second Travelling Seamlessly podcast. I'm Hannah Manning, a tax partner at Travis Smith. And I'm Siv Devakumar, one of the senior associates in the transaction tax team at Travis Smith. Today, Hannah and I are planning to do a whistle-stop tour through the key questions and our top tips for advising a global management team on their equity arrangements in a private equity transaction. Hannah, can you give us a typical example to work from? So let's say the target company is owned by a management team who are spread across five different jurisdictions. A financial investor, say a private equity house, makes an offer to buy the target from the management shareholders on the condition that they all invest 50% of their net of tax sale proceeds back into the group. So what would make that offer attractive to the management shareholders from a tax perspective, Sid? Well, wherever they're tax resident, each management shareholder would be looking for a few key boxes to be ticked. Firstly, they'll want their cash proceeds from the sale of the target company to be taxed at the optimal rate available in their jurisdiction. Next, they'll want a tax efficient way to reinvest in the new structure. And if it's possible in their jurisdiction, this may mean not triggering a tax charge on the portion of their proceeds that they're reinvesting into the buyer's acquisition structure. Then they'll want the acquisition of their new securities to be affordable and tax free. Remember that they'll usually buy two kinds of securities. First, strip securities, which are a combination of ordinary shares and preferred instruments that deliver a return on the same terms as the investor. Preferred instruments usually mean either preferred shares or debt instruments like loan notes. Second, their sweet equity, which is usually an extra parcel of ordinary shares that are expected to deliver a cut of the growth in value in the group if the business does well. Now, having acquired their securities, they'd only expect to pay tax in relation to them at a point when they also get cash in hand to fund that tax. And finally, and most importantly, on a future exit, they'd want the return they get on their strip securities and their sweet equity to be taxed at the optimal rate of tax available in their jurisdiction. Hannah, that's obviously a lot of management asks to meet. How do you jump through five jurisdictions worth of tax hoops to deliver those aims for your management team, 
all within the confines of an acquisition structure which has to work for the financial investor before anything else. Well, it's all about the art of the commercially possible. It just won't be possible to achieve all of the aims you just described in all five jurisdictions, as inevitably they'll be competing or contradictory requirements and you have to prioritise. So the first question is which are the key jurisdictions to focus on? And that will normally turn on where the key people are. Often it might be where the most people are, because, for example, failing to achieve the optimal tax rate on their future exit proceeds would, when added up, give rise to material payroll tax cost for the group. But it might also be where senior members of the management team are based or even areas where the target group may hope to expand in future. The important point here is that the list of key jurisdictions ideally shouldn't be too long. In our example, management might decide that out of the five relevant jurisdictions, three of them are key to the structuring. The second question is then what's legally possible in those three key jurisdictions? And this is where we'd work with overseas council to figure out what the most attractive package legally available is for management. We then have to marry the legal requirements up with the commercial considerations. It's in the investor's interest to try to accommodate those legal conditions in the three key jurisdictions, but obviously that needs to be done without changing the overall commercial deal or the investor's own tax treatment. So the idea is to work with the investor's structuring team to make commercially acceptable changes to the structure to optimise the tax treatment for both the investor and the key managers. So what can then be done for the other two jurisdictions, Siv? So there probably won't be any commercial bandwidth to change the structure to make it more tax efficient for managers in those other two jurisdictions. But we would still need to get tax advice there to check if there are any adverse tax consequences, especially if those consequences would impact the group or change the economics of the deal. For example, because the managers then won't have enough cash after tax to reinvest in the new structure at the level that the investor wants. The other things to remember is that although we're focusing on the tax drivers, non-tax considerations can be central to structuring equity incentives as well. Of these, two of the most important areas to get overseas advice on early in the process is securities law and exchange controls. The rules on those areas around holding foreign securities can be so prohibitive in certain jurisdictions that issuing equity incentives there just might not be the right answer. For instance, Indian exchange control rules require any Indian resident employee to repatriate their proceeds from the sale of shares in a non-Indian company within 90 days of a sale, which can often make investing in a foreign company a complete commercial non-starter for Indian resident employees. There'll inevitably be other complexities along the way to work through as well. The key to a successful structure is knowing where those obstacles tend to come up and then navigating around them to ensure they don't affect the overall commercials or the deal timetable. Okay, so let's talk about some of the most common obstacles. Siv, should we start with the sale piece? You mentioned earlier that management's aspiration will be that they should benefit from the optimum tax rate available on their cash proceeds and to reinvest in the investor's structure in a tax neutral way if possible. Are there any typical challenges in relation to that? Yes, but not always. It will all start with the target shareholding structure as obviously we can't structure outside what's already been done. Now most structures are designed with a particular tax treatment in place so we need to understand what that design was and then test whether all the conditions were met at the start, whether anything has changed since then and then whether the intended exit now fits with what was originally contemplated. 
So for example, a capital return tends to be taxed at a lower rate than income in most jurisdictions. In the UK, that would mean a 20% tax rate rather than 45%. So the intention may have been for management to sell their shares directly to the buyer and realise a capital return. If, however, the investor wants to buy at a lower level in the structure as a commercial matter, and then the sale proceeds have to be repatriated up the structure into management's hands, it might only be possible to do that as an income return. To take an example, in Australia, it's possible to achieve a tax rate of 23.5% on a sale of shares that have been held for more than 12 months, which would be the case for management sell the shares in the holding company of the target group directly to the buyer. However, if the sale is lower down in the structure, and then the holding company needs to be liquidated to return proceeds to shareholders, that liquidation distribution is almost twice as much. It will end up being taxed at 47% for Australian shareholders. Another scenario where complications may arise is where a manager is moved from one jurisdiction to another during the life of the investment. A particularly harsh example of how this can affect the tax position can be seen in the US. There, it can be beneficial for managers to make a special tax election known as an 83B election in relation to shares which are subject to a risk of forfeiture. And this would be done to avoid employment tax liabilities when those shares are sold. Now here we're talking about private company shares which are just subject to standard good and bad labour provisions. Now as an 83B election has to be made and filed with the US tax authorities within 30 days of acquiring the shares, there would be no opportunity for a manager who moves to the US at a later date to make that election, which could result in that manager being unable to elect out of the unfavourable employment tax treatment. So that then takes us to the second tax aim, reinvesting in the buyer structure on a tax neutral basis if possible. What does so-called tax neutral rollover treatment involve, Helen? Well, typically it's where management don't cash in all of their target shares and instead they exchange a portion of the shares for instruments in the buyer structure. And the idea here is that they replace their original target shares with the new shares for tax purposes, meaning that there's no tax to pay yet. And instead, they'll only trigger a taxable gain when they sell those new shares on a future exit. Now, this can be done fairly easily in places like the UK and the US, as long as it's structured correctly. And there are often formalistic or documentary boxes that are easy enough to tick, but it's very important to get these right to secure the intended tax treatment. In some other places, bear in mind that a tax neutral rollover isn't always legally available. For example, on share exchange in South Africa, there will usually be capital gains tax, but it may be possible for only 40% of the capital gain to be taxed, which results in an effective tax rate of 18% as compared to their top marginal income tax rate of 45%. And is tax deferred rollover the norm on private equity transactions? Well, generally and historically, yes, in those jurisdictions that offer it. But actually, as political and media attention focuses more and more on lower CGT rates, particularly for sweet equity returns, managers may choose to cash out all of their proceeds to bank current tax rates and then start again with market value based cost in their new investments. So whether they cash out and reinvest out of their after-tax proceeds or they manage to roll over tax neutrally, the next question is what tax treatment will their new strip and their sweet equity instruments in the buyer structure deliver? So Siv, can you remind us of the aims there? So if we start with a strip investment in the acquisition structure, commercially, the economic interests of the investor and management are meant to be aligned. 
Strip securities, other than the ordinary shares we mentioned earlier, are usually preference shares and or loan notes for which management pay face value and then are entitled to a fixed return on the same terms as the investor. Typically, that fixed return will be left to accrue during the life of the holding and is only actually paid out in cash on exit. There are then three tax aims to think about with strip. First, no tax during the life of the investment. Second, withholding tax. And third, optimising tax on the return on redemption. So taking that first one, it will be essential that no tax is triggered for management while the return is accruing, as they obviously won't have any cash in hand to fund it. And that's usually fine for a dividend return on shares because there's no taxable event unless and until a dividend is actually declared. But it can be different with loan notes where in some jurisdictions like the US and the Netherlands, the accrual of interest for accounting purposes usually triggers a tax charge for the loan note holders, even if the interest isn't cash paid. Now, in those circumstances, the affected managers may need help to fund their tax liabilities. Usually this would be help in the form of a loan. Um, or in some cases, they may even want to hold a preference share as opposed to a loan note so that the liability doesn't arise. In the UK, interest is only treated as paid for tax purposes if either the company pays it in cash or else issues a payment in kind note. It will be important to management in those cases to be able to elect out of receiving payment in kind notes so that they can defer their tax bill until the interest is cash paid on redemption. OK, and then what happens on redemption? Well, on redemption, the payment of the dividend or interest return can be subject to withholding tax sourced by the company and or subject to tax on receipt in the hands of the manager. And this will depend on where the company in which they hold shares is tax resident. If the manager is expecting to receive the return tax-free, then withholding tax will be an absolute cost for them. If, on the other hand, they're expecting to pay tax on the dividend or interest income, they'll be at risk of double taxation unless they can get a credit for that withholding tax which the company deducted at source. In both cases, the question is whether the manager can either benefit from a domestic exemption from the withholding tax or, especially for overseas managers, whether they can get double tax treaty relief to reduce or better yet eliminate the withholding tax burden. Given that the investor is also likely to want to mitigate withholding tax on interest and dividends, they may well be aligned with management in wanting to locate their structure in a jurisdiction where withholding isn't required, or in being willing to structure debt or shares so as to benefit from an exemption. But it's important to consider this at an early stage when looking at the acquisition structure. And is there any way to optimise the tax rate payable on the interest or dividend return? The usual position across jurisdictions is that whether loan notes are redeemed or sold, the interest income is taxed as interest. So that sort of just is what it is, really. In contrast, there's often a difference for preference shares. If the preference shares are sold with the right to the accrued dividend return attached, called a sale of preference shares come div, rather than the shares being redeemed, management may be able to claim a capital return on the coupon element, rather than it being subject to what's usually a higher dividend tax rate. This more beneficial treatment is available in jurisdictions like the UK, Canada and Australia. There may be ways to structure the share rights to strengthen the argument for this treatment as well, but that will depend on the commercial terms of the deal and the rules of the jurisdiction. Now, all that said, even just looking at three key jurisdictions, there is often limited headroom to structure for more optimal treatment on management strip instruments, as they have to hold them on the same terms as the investor. And the investor's tax treatment will obviously come first. 
The sweet equity, however, is often different as it's held exclusively by management. The idea is that management acquire their sweet equity for a minimal upfront investment, and those shares then entitle them to a proportion of the profits if the business grows and performs well by exit. It won't be a very effective incentive unless it attracts optimal tax treatment. So Hannah, what tax treatment would management expect for their sweet equity? So ideally, there should be no tax on the acquisition of their shares, or at the very least, they should receive some funding to help them pay any tax. And let's come back to that funding point in a bit. Similar to what you described earlier for their strip securities, SIF, they won't want to incur tax charges during the life of their holding unless they also receive cash to pay it. Now, sweet equity doesn't usually pay out dividends before exit, so generally that's okay. The whole point of it is to deliver a share in the growth of the business on exit by way of a capital return. The key to achieving no tax on acquisition and the most effective tax rate on exit is usually to ensure that neither the acquisition nor the exit proceeds are treated as some form of employment income. And are there any obstacles to achieving those outcomes? Well, it's all generally achievable, but yes, there are some issues to work through. So first of all, management will be limited by the laws of their jurisdiction, of course. Certain jurisdictions, such as Denmark, are suspicious of employees being taxed like an investor, and so they tax any share-based payments to an employee as employment income. In a similar vein, shares held by a Singaporean manager subject to transfer restrictions are taxed at 22% by reference to the market value at the time when the restrictions lift, rather than just giving rise to a tax-free capital gain on sale. Other jurisdictions can challenge capital treatment depending on the facts. So, for instance, in Germany, the tax authority can recharacterize a capital return on the sale of shares into ordinary income, which means that it's taxed at 42 to 45% as a minimum rather than 25%, uh, if it considers that there's a very close connection between the share arrangements and the employment relationship. Although there are some exceptions, like uh, US profit interest schemes, for example, which actually require the opposite, the general principle to bear in mind is that management need to pay tax market value for their sweet equity. Otherwise, any shortfall is going to be taxed as an employment benefit. Now, tax market value can mean different things in different jurisdictions. And so getting a valuation which is appropriate for the relevant jurisdiction is really important. It may also be desirable to agree that valuation with the tax authorities in that jurisdiction. This is, for example, not uncommon in the Netherlands. And where that's the case, arrangements may need to be made for management to commit to invest in the sweet equity, but to hold loan notes until the valuation and therefore the value of the sweet equity to be acquired is determined. Valuation of sweet equity is a big area of focus for tax authorities and therefore also by side due diligence providers. And so the more support that can be provided for evaluation, the better. So all of this obviously then begs the question, what if the sweet equity is valued at more than management can afford to pay? Siv, are there any options there? So in our example, the target's management shareholders would fund their strip and sweet equity investment out of their sale proceeds, with the sweet being acquired first for market value and then the remaining reinvestment amounts being used to purchase the strip instruments. So if the sweet equity were more expensive than expected, this would likely mean the management strip investment would be reduced 
or else they might have to invest more to achieve the desired proportions of strip and sweet equity. However, managers who haven't historically held shares in the target group might look to require sweet equity on or shortly after completion too, and they may then need help to fund their acquisition if the sweet equity isn't cheap. If the group has sufficient funds to do it, then either a loan or a grossed up bonus could be made to them. This would either fund the acquisition cost or else fund the employment tax charge triggered by buying the shares cheaply. Bear in mind that loans made at non-commercial interest rates will often give rise to tax charges too, so that would have to be managed. Occasionally though, the sweet equity is just too expensive to deliver the commercial aims, in which case the investor and management will usually look to restructure it to make it cheaper. This might be by introducing a hurdle or a ratchet so that the sweet equity shares only participate in profits after a certain performance hurdle is met and or after the investor receives a certain level of return on its total investment. Alternatively, they may look to change the form of the incentive altogether by introducing a bonus or option scheme to avoid the funding costs or upfront tax liabilities. Now, everything we've covered so far has assumed that management hold their strip and suite securities alongside the investor in the same vehicle. But that's actually not always the case, right, Hannah? When do they do otherwise in your experience and why? In some jurisdictions, uh, it's the case that the best tax treatment is only available if management holds through a management company or some other pooling vehicle. In the Netherlands, for example, holding via a company may enable managers to avoid the very high income tax rates applicable to lucrative interests. And in Luxembourg, it may be preferable for management to hold via a pooling vehicle in order that the tax authorities don't seek to operate with holding tax on dividends or deemed dividends paid to them. OK, and if a pooling vehicle is needed, how does it compare to holding directly for management? So as it's an added layer in the structure, the aim here will be for minimal tax leakage to occur at that level. If it's transparent, like a partnership, then any payments to it will be treated for tax purposes as paid directly to management. So this can be a good result because there's then no tax at the level of the partnership and all income and gains flow directly to management. But it's really important to understand the tax treatment of the partnership from the perspective of managers in a different jurisdiction to ensure that all tax filing requirements are met and there's no risk of income or capital returns ending up in that vehicle at a point when management can't access the cash to pay any related tax charges. If the vehicle is opaque, like a company, then returns can be paid to it without triggering tax for management at that point. However, if tax is then payable by the vehicle on those returns, then this would only be tax efficient if management can then claim a tax credit for the tax suffered by the company when they receive their proceeds. And remember, you have to think with opaque vehicles about whether there are any corporate blockers to distributing the proceeds to management, such as the need for distributable reserves. So, when we focused on the tax issues here, it's also important to say that the reason for having a pooling vehicle may be less to do with tax and more to do with corporate administration, having fewer shareholders than the register or confidentiality. And in the UK, we often use a nominee arrangement for these purposes. So how does that work, Sid? So a nominee arrangement is a bear trust where the legal interest in shares is held by a nominee. That's often the trustee of the group's employee benefit trust, for instance on behalf of the relevant managers. The terms of the arrangement will vary, 
but the nominee will often have the ability to exercise the voting rights on the shares and to enter into arrangements to sell them. However, the economic rights will always sit with the managers as beneficial owners of the shares. The advantage of this arrangement is it helps with the administration of the equity arrangements, but it's effectively looked through for tax purposes, so it's as if the managers held their shares directly. This is less complicated for UK resident managers than holding through a company or a partnership. In jurisdictions which are less familiar with trust arrangements, such as Argentina and Spain, for instance, which don't recognise a difference between legal and beneficial ownership, a similar result can be achieved through the use of a foundation, which will generally hold the shares and then issue depository receipts to the management team. I think that's probably all we've got time for today. I hope you've enjoyed our introduction to some of the issues to think about when structuring a private equity transaction for a global management team. Check out later episodes in our Travelling Seamlessly series for more detail on some of these issues, as well as other hot topics in the global mobility space.